Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Who Writes This Stuff, a podcast now old enough to move out of its parents' house, but probably won't. I'm coming to you currently from my parents' house in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, as I'm visiting for Christmas vacation. Uh, I set up in my older brother's uh, former room, so yeah, I'm a rebel. Uh, So we did it! I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this is episode 20. You're probably aware of this because I just said it, but I can hardly believe it. I totally owe myself 20 bucks because I didn't think we were going to get this far. Uh, Real quick up front before I start the show, though, um, the first podcast of next year, which I don't know if you're aware of how math works, but it's 2012 is is the year. Uh, The first one I I do next year, which will be January 3rd, I think, uh, is going to be a year in review of sorts. Um, where I'm going to highlight some of my favorite albums uh, of the past year, as well as my favorite movies, uh, TV shows, books, etc. Um, and I want your help. Uh, I, I uh, Please send in your list of favorites as well from the last year. Uh, email that to who writes this stuff podcast at gmail.com. And uh, it's about, I think it's about time we had more listener, listener feedback on the show, honestly. Um, wait, maybe I didn't say that clear enough. I think it's about time we had some more listener feedback on this show. Listener feedback! Feedback. Nice. Uh, and this is the way to do it. So I, I want to hear your list of top five songs or top ten songs or albums or movies, TV shows, books, uh, art hanging on your doctor's office wall. I don't care. Uh, anything artistic that, that you've kind of uh, that's kind of taken over your year for you, uh, lived in your car or, or you know, a movie that you can't stop thinking about, whatever it is, uh, send it in. I, I want to know and I'll read it on the show. And, uh, yeah, it'll be a whole big hoopla. Um, it'll, it'll probably be a medium hoopla not, not that not that much um, so for the 20th episode I wanted to do something kind of special and uh, so I sat down with arguably the most influential musician in my life uh, the man who helped give me life uh, my dad uh, Sam Flora uh, who is a music theory professor and uh, at a college here in Arkadelphia as well as a jazz trombonist uh he also plays other instruments uh flute and and various things like that uh he teaches and travels all over the country uh speaking and soloing with jazz bands and ensembles uh he's very much in that world and is and is extremely talented at what he does and uh uh, and I, I've, I've wanted to have my dad on the podcast since I started it, honestly, since a lot of the conversations that we've had over the years involving art and music and pursuing this as a career and just the kind of the pitfalls and the ins and outs of it and so forth uh, are a huge reason why, reason why I wanted to start this thing in the first place. Um, so with all that said, let's get into it. Here's my chat with my dad, Sim Flora. Sam Flora, talking to you. Yes, you are. In your very own house. So this is bizarre. Did you ever think you would talk to your son on his very own podcast? Did you think when I, when I came out, when I was born, <laughs> almost 30 years ago, you were like, one day we'll sit and talk on a podcast? Well, Because you knew what that podcast, you knew what a podcast was back then. I'm sure I, you did. You are, you've always been ahead of the curve. Yeah, you bet. Because I watched Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> so you no, know. I had an inkling of it when you were a kid because you would drag out the cassette tapes, uh-huh. have your own sports radio show, and read the back of radio card, read the back of uh, baseball cards. Oh, I don't remember doing that. Oh yeah, you turn them over and read the back of baseball cards. And I mean, this. that's what I was into. So I have no doubt that that's that, that right. happened. I mean, I definitely remember sitting in. People have no reference point for what this is, but we are sitting in. 
in your house that I grew up in, but in the room that is now kind of uh, in the middle of other rooms. But it used to be a game room with a ping pong table in it. Yeah. And once the ping pong table left for a while, I remember sitting in there with, I guess a computer station was down there or something, yes. but I remember sitting in there with recording equipment yes. and making my own like radio shows. <laughs> That's right. And I had two tape cassette tape decks where I could cut, I could play music on one and record it on the <laughs> other and I would intro the songs. <laughs> so I guess I've, I'm, I've been uh, destined to, to start a podcast at some point. Yeah. Well, the uh, the other thing I was talking about was when you just had a cassette player, and you did this in Noble, Oklahoma. Oh yeah, that was a. So I would just press record, and you were and... just barely able to press record. <laughs> we had to press play and record at the same time on you it. You got and, it. Yeah, you to got get it. it. Took a lot to do. Oh I had an gosh. Apple IIe. <laughs> oh and yeah, we had an Apple IIe, which is we still have in there. Yep. Because <clears throat> we can't get rid of anything. Uh, of significance in our lives. Like Heaven that. forbid. Why would you get rid of that? I know. Doesn't everybody want one? <laughs> I know. Now, now it's one of those things. If you look up, look up on eBay, they're they're well sought after, just as pieces of pop art. People like to put them in their in their offices or you know. Right. It's like right. a bygone era. You'll probably get phone calls from this podcast. Probably. I hope so. It's not for sale. Sorry. Right, nope. Nope. Can't do Sorry, it. Sorry. We got to keep that. Certain things. <laughs> I don't have any notes for this one. I usually have notes and 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 points of uh that I want to question people, but I, I think I knew you pretty well before <laughs> I know. And I am going to ask you questions uh, that I already know the answer to, so feel free to... to uh, change my... Yeah, change my... Change the answer. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, feel free to expound a little bit on what things might mean, I, I guess. But uh, Okay. Um, so where where did you grow up? What part of the country did you grow up in? Um, I was actually born in central Illinois, but grew up in southern Illinois. I don't think I knew that. You're, where were you born? You weren't born in Ducoin? Danville, Illinois. Were you really? I was. Right out of the gate. I'm learning something. There you I go. Like Aren't you glad we had this talk? My gosh. <laughs> if I had to press record, I never would have known. <laughs> I know it. I know it. <laughs> Wait, Dan, okay. Why Danville? Because I thought, I thought Grandma lived in Ducoin. No. Uh, in those days, uh, you know, my father was from up there. Right. I did know that, yeah. And um, in those days, I think my father and my mother were living with his parents and so forth. Okay. But uh, in Danville, and uh, you're right. Where's your, where's your si- kind of where your sister lives now? Exactly. It was act- actually crazy. West Westville, uh, approximately five miles from where my sister lives right now. But uh, I kind of remember you taking me up there and showing me kind of you know like this is where he lived or this is where, you know, where yeah. certain relatives were. And, but I didn't yeah. really put it together that, that that's because, you know, I, I never really knew why I just assumed that we were always in, you, you know, the family was always in Southern Illinois. So where well, did, how do, where did Ducoin come into play? Is that, that is where your, your mother and family are from that area though? They are. Okay. And uh, that's where my uh, father, my father and my grandfather, now keep in mind, <laughs> My grandfather was born in 1878. Oh my gosh. My father was born in 1909. So we're talking about people wow, way back there. Yeah. But um, both of them worked in the United Electric coal mines in southern Illinois. Yeah. And in from the teens through the 60s, um, coal was a big industry. It is a little bit, but was a big industry and the main employer in Southern Illinois. Mm-hmm. So my grandfather was an in, was a steam engineer, and uh, everything 
you know, early on in the, in the 20th century was run by steam. And, uh, so he was the, the, he was an engineer of steam. I mean, he could make steam turn anything and work for anything. So he was paid quite well. And he went down there and did that. My father came along and he had the same, uh, mechanical ability, except it was with diesel. And by the time he came along, you know, in the, uh, 30s and early 40s, things were run by diesel. Trains had switched over to diesel engines, and and uh, the big uh, machinery in the coal industry where, were where run that, by diesel. Where did that knack to do that that kind of thing come from? Did they have schooling at any point to like learn how to do that, or was it just my father did it and taught me, and so now I had, I know how to do it? Um, a great deal of that is is uh, just natural mechanical ability. Look around this house. Yeah. <laughs> well, the fact that we were in this house. Exactly. Um, but they just had that ability, and probably because my father grew up in his father's house around people who solved problems in that environment, right? Um, he realized that he had a knack for it. Of course, my father also was an amateur musician, played keyboard and saxophone. Did you know that? I did not know that. Congratulations! <laughs> I knew that he had that he was a photographer. Yes. So I was going to get to that. I was going to ask more about that. But yes. I, he, wait, he played an oh, instrument? He played in a band. Because I always said that you were the first instrument musician, instrumentalist, I guess, in, in my family. And that's what started it, is that I'm second generation. No, no. Really? Yeah, really. He played, he played in a band? He played saxophone and keyboard in a like band. Like in the high school band or like in a, in a group? No, no, in a professional band. Well, sem, semi, you know, they, they go out and play gigs and get the drunk or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So they played more for the... More, less, more to be artistic, and more probably for the women and the alcohol. You got it. You got it. <laughs> okay. What what most people do today? Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. Something has you? changed. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about the chicks. I had no idea. Your parents split up when you were really young. Yeah, I was three. So, did, did you have any idea when you started playing an instrument that your dad did it as well? Like, no. did your mom ever tell you that? Or well, yeah, uh, my mom told me. A lot about my father as needed. And so if I, when it came right. time to start in band or play an instrument, you know, and, and I would ask about, did this come from anywhere or whatever, when yeah. I was old enough to know that, she'd tell me those things. My grandmother also, um, my father's mother, was a, a, a very good singer, if not professional singer. She took professional lessons and she did it. And one of the really fun things that I've done in my life was that when I was 21, and my grandmother was in ill health but and, and lived up there, still going to church uh, on her own. I went up there. We went up there to visit, and uh, she and I got to sing in her church. Oh, really? And so she, uh, I don't remember if she played piano uh, for it or somebody else did, but I, I remember singing with her in church. Really? And it was the joy of her life to th- that her grandkid, you know, would do that with her. Yeah. I just wanted to play jazz trombone, but she wanted me to sing right, in right. church, so... So I did that. So, uh, so did your your paternal grandparents? Did they have a role in your life at all when you were growing up? Because I know that your dad kind of took off, right? Yeah, and it kind of to do his own thing. Exactly. And he wasn't really that prevalent in your life growing yeah, up. Like growing zero, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so did they? Uh, what, what was kind of their role, if any, growing up? Well, they were. Uh, I honestly don't know. I'm genuinely asking. I, I know they were older. You know, I can just always remember them being older, and 
and as I loved them and respected them, my mom would say they're coming, and I'd say, "Okay, what do I need to do?" And okay, so it was one of those kind of that things. kind of deal. Yeah, and I definitely understand that. I got I really, I really loved my grandmother. My grandmother was a sweet lady, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd do anything for her. My grandfather was just kind of gruff and big. He was he yeah. was all right. I I don't understand because I I just knowing a little bit I know about my family, uh, and your family and the ancestry. There were a couple gruff kind of paternal figures you know your grandfather was kind of a gruff rough guy yeah my mom's father yeah was, was gruff like, with, he was the meanest man was, i ever uh, met exactly outside of that <laughs> <laughs> did we get that on the on video absolutely, on tape? absolutely. good good that, recorded. that's recorded because he was the meanest man i, I ever just met. don't and i don't understand it because i guess it's just a mix of genetics with other people involved with creating us but we're but we are was such agreeable like a uh, conversationalist kind of people set, you know, we have the sensitive artist things and it's always interesting to me to think about uh, the kind of man's man, you know, calloused hand, calloused heart, perhaps uh-huh. uh, like guys that, that are not that far removed generationally. It's just, and what do you think uh, factored into, to shift us in a way that we, we seek out, you know, relationships with people and to perform for large crowds. And, right. And they seem like the people who would just be happy to just be left alone. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you and I are the product of two. Uh, my father was a schmoozer, right. a talker, and he used it for... Uh, a salesman his, type? Yes. Okay. He used it for his selfish uh, good. He could talk a lot of people into a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we won't go into that whole, whole <laughs> no, we don't playing need music for the chick thing. But um, he was also, <laughs> there are also legend stories. Now, uh, when my mother's brother, Gene Satterfield, was a kid, he went to live with my father mm-hmm. and mother who were older. So Satterfield has told me these stories. Oh, okay. He I told was wondering me how you knew. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, he's told me a lot of stuff. But um, he said that my father would uh, buy a new car with no money down, talk his way into it, and then... Uh, would uh, drive it for a year and trash it and whatever and give it back and he'd go somewhere else and talk his way into another one. I've been trying to do that for years. I got nothing here. But hey, you he know. finally got a charger. Yeah, well, so. I, did, I did get the charger. But he uh, he was a personable guy. And but you also know my mother, right? Who uh, the sweetest human being on the planet. She is. But everybody who knows who's ever had any dealings with my mother loves her. Because she makes you feel like you're the most important person in the world. And when she was working at Kroger's and when she was working at the bank all those years, and right. doing that, she loved being around people and interacting with people. And she, to this day, she loves young people. Yeah, she does. You know, and, and she's 87 and young people still love that woman. Yeah. Uh, whether it's great grandkids or grandkids. Well, or, she has or a very whoever. young and youthful spirit. Right. Still. Right. And so there's hope for both of us. Yeah, I know. Thank goodness. And I do think about that whenever I think about genetics. Like I think about, you know, you, well, the older you get, the more you start thinking, well, it's shifting from the the early to mid 20s. I'm going to live forever, you know, right. thing into, oh, I'm, I'm this is going to end someday. You start thinking of ahead and looking at, at your parents and your grandparents to see kind of like a little glimpse into a possible future. And so looking at like Grandma Louise, I'm just like, oh man, I'm stoked because because yeah. you know because she yeah. she is so with it in so many variety of ways. I don't care. <laughs> but the uh, other thing about my mother is that uh, she is the product of Bob Satterfield, the meanest man I've ever met. Right, that's my true. grandfather and her father, and yet you know 
none of his kids really turned out to be like that. Especially the women are great. Do you think it was in spite of that? Or yeah. Like we, I don't, I, I don't enjoy this character, these characteristics. So I'm going to do everything in my power to not be to be maybe nicer to my kids, maybe be sweeter in this way, or because they were raised around the gruffness. Good point. So they were kind of uh, it kind of shot them in the opposite direction. I think that and part of the. The other part is they took after the Stanley. Oh, okay. <laughs> they took after yeah. her, uh, her mom's people. So, because her mother was great, you know, yeah. just a sweet sweetheart. So, what uh, I do want to talk about a little bit about about your dad. What other kind of artistic things did he do? We, I, I mentioned he was a photographer, but what, yeah. what kind of photographer was he? He was a pilot. Got his pilot license. He did some Army Air Force flying, and then he uh, he became. Uh, it was still a pilot for United Electric Coal Company in Southern Illinois, and he did some mapping. You know, he'd fly and, and, and map the area. So he would, he would take pictures of certain areas, R- right? Like uh, enemy uh, countries or just anything. Oh, well, I have no idea what he did here, what he, what oh. he did there. But when he came to uh, Southern Illinois, you know, when he worked for the coal company, he would t- he would fly over their place and map their position and their their coal right. company and stuff like that. He would also, when they found out that he was uh, such a personable schmoozer Mm -hmm. that when they would have uh, investors or Senate investigating committees or uh, higher ups come in, he would be the guy to take them out. He'd fly them around. He'd schmooze them. He'd take them drinking. He'd show them. You got got it. He was the guy. He was the the fun guy. Interesting. Uh So, So in essence, we get... Perhaps our entertainment, our love of entertainment, yeah. from from that. I mean, I definitely see a lot of that in there. But you know, also you're talking about your mom is that has that ability. She has a little bit more uh, of a conscience, <laughs> or yeah, in, exactly. in a genuine like she doesn't want to be anything but genuine. Exactly. Either she doesn't exactly. want to do something, but it's not a genuine. Thing. No, no, she no, she, that's not her. And and just thankfully, the genuine article that is her, that is her is is sweet and not gruff and, right, right. and just rude, you know, yeah, like it yeah. could be. But Let me say one more thing about him. Okay. He was artistic in so many ways with the photography, mm-hmm. with, uh, with the, the amateur music that he did. But the thing that intrigues me most about him, he was an amateur magician. Really? Yeah, you knew this. I, maybe, <laughs> maybe. I'm so glad we had this talk. I don't think I knew that. Maybe? I don't well, know. Well, have you ever heard of the music? The magician, the great Blackstone. Mm-mm. All right, that guy went around the country in the 30s and 40s, and I don't know when, but he was he was like this. He was like all the the Las Vegas magicians right. of, of today. Well, he was the guy back then, and he came and pre- performed a show in Danville, and he stayed the night with my grandfather when my really? father was a child, and he was so affected by this guy. And Blackstone had a school of magicians, probably like a camp or something. Yeah. And so my father attended that and became an amateur magician. And so you, you combine that with, with his schmoozer status. And I mean, he's... What do you think the chances are that he used magic to pick up women? <laughs> <laughs> well, after seeing him later in life, I think it was, it was magic that anybody go out with him. But you know, what can I say? No, I, I was Strange. like, that, that, that seems like, a, like a, why, another you know, trick in his hat. Why wouldn't he use it? Exactly. There you go. <laughs> maybe last to Sheffer. What's that behind your ear? It's my phone number. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe. Exactly. 
That just sounds like a, I, I that was pretty good. What I just did, I literally pulled my phone number out of your ear, and not, it wasn't even on a piece of paper. I know it was the literal number in the thinner. Unbelievable. Uh, I pulled it out in smoke. I, I pulled. <laughs> I pulled. I pulled like scarves out of my sleeve and it formed, it formed my phone number <laughs> as I pulled it out. And I thought it was just your bad taste in what you no. were wearing today. <laughs> I've been carrying the scarf around in my sleeve for months, just to do hoping, that. hoping for the chance just to impress me. My phone number. <laughs> but anyway, back to my father. Well, he, he was he was all things. Yeah. And when I look at his children, <clears throat> which I can't probably look at all of them because no. I don't know where they are. That's true. But when I look at the ones that I know are around, I see bits and pieces. But he was the 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 whole deal. He was the complete collection. Right. Um, I had a younger half-brother, as you know, mm-hmm. um, who one time had a computer repair business. So that comes the mechanical ability. Right. Uh, he also did some motorcycle riding, which I have done. And yeah. if I had let you, you would have done. Oh, you yeah. would still do. I, I still, I'm starting to feel a little bit of a tingle. In there you go. There see. You. Yeah. Uh, but then there's my sister who is, she could walk into a room and take 40 bucks and go to Walmart and come back. And the entire place is perfect. That's true. Because she has that ability of organizing and just, you know, making everything just right. And you've seen her yard. She's like, she's a tornado of creative uh, <laughs> Very good energy. She just comes through and you don't understand how this insane woman is going to <laughs> do anything that's that's productive. And then you're blown away with just how amazing. Exactly. Seriously. I do music, but as you know, looking around here, I also do... You built a house that we're sitting in. Right. <laughs> Construction. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, I have a... I can do some mechanical things, too. I used to do more of my own car mechanic yeah. type maintenance till I just got sick and tired of getting my hands dirty. And See, I, this is a thing that I feel like maybe I should have and... and because I don't have any... I don't have the knowledge of cars that, honestly, like, I, f- I feel like if I sat down with... with uh, my great uncles, your your uncles, and and, yeah. and a couple other males in our family that they would be ashamed of me because I know that they were the types of guys that could, you know, just sit around in an afternoon, drink beer, and build a car. Kind of guys like <laughs> yeah, the stories right. I've heard, and you're I'm like, right. I'm such an awe of that because I don't have any kind of knowledge of that kind of stuff. But yeah. I do, and and I was for a while there, I was beating myself up like maybe I should get into this because I, it, this is my kind of genetics, uh, my line lineage here, but. Um, but I, but I, but and then I, I like I do have the mechanical side, but it's more of like I enjoy the building and crafting of of songs. Right. I, right. I like I I will sit and I will do the the equivalent of building that car. I will I will sit in a room all day or all afternoon and come out with with a song that you know some some people might it might take them you know way way longer to do or maybe they couldn't do it all. So may, I have that in me and, and and I will to the to the detail and you know every little. Uh, nitty gritty. Exactly. I, I will dissect and I will I will take apart, clean, <laughs> l- see how it works, and then yes. put it together. And, and so I, I, in a way, I do I do that. I have seen you fight and fight and fight some more for one lyric that you would not let yeah. go because yeah. it wasn't perfect. It wasn't what you wanted, and you wouldn't give it away. Yeah. You you you, you stayed and fought for that. And um, let me just let me say this about that that whole mechanical. Thing uh, on my mother's side, there were three three boys and three girls. The three guys were incredible mechanics in terms of solving problems of mechanical things. And Gene Satterfield, my uncle, is the best I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen anybody 
could look at something and figure it out, take it apart and put it back together like him. I told him that once and he shook his head and he said, your father was better than me. He said, wow. he said, your father was the best I've ever seen. Do you think that was false modesty or do you think he was being truthful? I don't think uh, false modesty entered into Gene Satterfield. <laughs> good point. So, good point. <laughs> you know, so, Never mind. Forget but, that. No, I think that from the record. Yeah, he'd just tell you exactly what he thought. Yeah. And has. Uh, but so coming at it from both of those, I mean, we get both of those uh, things right there. And most of mechanical ability, most construction is just problem solving. Mm-hmm. It's just understanding how it works and then, then taking the problems that are germane to the specific and working them out. And uh, I once asked uh, John Satterfield that, and, and, and I said, John, did you, my, this is my cousin, and uh, I said, did, did you inherit this mechanical ability that the Satterfield guys have? And John smiled and said, oh, yeah, I, I had my uh, uh, Volvo completely torn apart and sitting in my front yard when we lived in Bolivia or yeah. Guatemala or wherever it was. And, and you know, I'm going... Oh shoot, he's a real Satterfield, <laughs> and all, all I did was move a house. Yeah, wow, how disappointing! Uh, yeah, how disappointing. Yeah, and you also, uh, I mean, you had that that Mustang, and you know, you well, got, I didn't exactly do much with. Well, it. I had great hopes. That's true. We carried that thing around from state to state. Yeah, the, sure. the Mustang. Now I sold to build it. Driveway out there. That's true, which was worth it, I think. It was very worth it. <laughs> so, but where did where did music kind of come into play as far as a thing that you, like a desire? Not, you know, because music exists from birth, but there had to be that, that kind of spark of that desire. Uh, where did that come from? Do you remember that? Yeah, uh, it certainly was not my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I really think the earliest stuff I remember is growing up in church. Because we had a great, graded choir and music program in church. And, uh, and also in school, we had terrific elementary music programs uh, at the school I was in. I mean, we did lots of stuff. So I grew up singing, and I just remember in church, it was just so fun. I mean, it was just, there was something about it even then. I had no idea that I'd do it for a living, but there was just something about it that was me. Mm -hmm. And then in the fourth grade, because we started band in the fourth grade in those days. Oh, wow. I put a trumpet to my face and that metal going on my face and playing a few notes. Not that I was any good, but it was my basketball, my football. It was the sports. It was everybody else had something they were doing. As soon as I touched that thing to me, it was like, whoa, this is me. I can do this or I want to do this Uh in, in those days. I remember being in the sixth grade and the seventh grade was where you made the big jump into a band that could actually play something you could recognize. Right. And I remember going to a seventh grade band concert in the, in the park in Ducoin and recognizing that those guys in that band were just a year ahead of me and I couldn't do what they could do. And I went home that very night into the basement. <laughs> That's where my mother banned me, so to speak, <laughs> to the basement. Right. And I went down there and started practicing and... I stayed down there way too long, but yeah, you know, at least I knew that if you're going to get this as good as the seventh graders are, you're going to have to bust your tail and get yeah. something done. And um, I was sucked in at that moment. You don't play trumpet anymore, though. I uh, definitely not. So what? <laughs> I'd have to have a personality change if I was a trumpet player. So what? Uh, where was the shift? Like, where where did you stop playing? Because you play, you're you are a, I would say, a professional trombonist. That is your instrument of choice. Yes. There had to be one. Yes. Uh, you also play flute, but where did that, where did the the shift come, from trumpet and trombone? And why? Like why why change it? 
Interesting that you would ask that. Do you really not know this? I, I really, honestly, I might have, you might have told me years ago, but I, I don't. I went through high school as a trumpet player and as a senior, he needed trombones in the band. We had too many trumpets and there were several really good ones. Mm-hmm. So he takes a look at me, sizes me up that I could probably play trombone. So Because of your chops. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I'm in a practicing every night. I mean, if, if I wasn't working at Kroger's, which I usually did mm-hmm. then uh, at night, then he would run me out of there at 5 o'clock because I was in there practicing like crazy because I, I was just l- loving playing. Yeah. But I couldn't. I listened to Maynard Ferguson. Big mistake. I listened to Doc Severinsen. Wait, why was that a big mistake? Oh, because Maynard could play all those high notes. Because Maynard was a freak. And I I was just a stupid... You're not disparaging Maynard Ferguson. We're we're saying that he... Oh, heavens, no. (laughs) He could do stuff that I can never do and still to this day couldn't do. Mm. Um, And there was Doc Severinsen. And uh, and I'm getting depressed because I'm 17 years old and I can't play like that. They do. So there must be something wrong with me. I'm never going to make it. And so I'm asking my band director, how can I play better? How can I do all this? So I had a band director who decided... You know, I could probably move this guy to trombone with a little discouragement. So he told me, said, you know, you're just never really going to be uh, what you want to be in terms of a trumpet player with those kind of fat lips you got and stuff. Right. But, and, and so one day I was in there playing trumpet. I remember in the, in the back practice room there in Ducoin, I walked out and he handed me a valve trombone. He was standing there listening. He handed me a valve trombone. He said, just put this on your face and see what you think. I went, no, I don't want to play that. He said, no, it's really, here, just play one note. So I put it on my face. I blew one note. And he said, look at that. A natural <laughs> lion sack. <laughs> uh, you're a natural. Yeah. You're never going to have any trouble if you play trombone. Well, you'll be a really good player. But if you f- stick with trumpet, you're just going to fight you're, it, fight this it. This is fight. your senior year? Yes. Why even bother? You're going to be gone the next year. Well, because yeah, I was stupid. Yeah. But now I know I wasn't stupid at all. I was going to say, have you written that guy a check yet? Like, you owe that guy at least a fruit basket of some sort. I'd like to have given him a few other things. Oh, okay. And so so over, over Christmas, he gives me a trombone, a nasty old trombone. I took it home. I played a few notes, and my mother said, what are you doing? It sounds like an old cow. I said, well, thanks, Mom. There's the Satterfield truth and the truthfulness yeah, coming out. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, thanks for that support. So I worked that... Uh, Christmas break, practicing. I went back and I made the switch to trombone. And so I'm a senior and the guy playing first chair trombone, Tim, is a senior. So I start at the bottom of the section. There's about seven trombones. Well, we had this little uh, uh, challenge system, whereas if you challenge the next guy, you can move up in a chair. So first thing I did was challenge the girl next to me and she said, you got it. I don't. I, I'm not going to play for anybody in public. So I moved to the next kid. Who I said, "Hey, by the way, next week I'm challenging you." He said, "Not me. You're moving up, man. I don't want this stuff." And uh, finally, my friend Tim is looking down at me, moving up in a section, and he's the one who's helped me with trombone. You know, he told me a few tricks, and he showed me a few things, and I'm moving up toward him. He finally says, "You're uh, not going to challenge me, are you?" I just smiled and I said, I got, I got to do what a guy's got to do, Tim. Yeah. So I got right up next to him and I said, by the way, Monday. Next week. <laughs> Good for you. Have a good so, weekend. So he started practicing then. And so we had it out and I actually beat him out for first chair. I was the most hated. amazing. I was the most hated man in the band. Everybody, <laughs> I didn't know that story. Oh, shoot. Everybody hated my guts because here he helped me out. Yeah. I was the new guy. He was feeling sorry for yeah. me. And then I take his place. 
to a pretty major university that I probably had a great band and was there any kind of nervousness that you'd only been on the horn for a year yeah it took me three or four years to actually get up to where I should have been first of all I went to a junior college in California the first year oh I think yeah, I knew that and they had nothing really they had a pep band but I met a good high school band director and uh, he was a trombone player and he had gone to a major university he kind of shook his head like what are you doing out here and, uh, but he helped me a great deal. He, he put me on some serious fundamentals. And uh, <clears throat> so okay, he was a big help. So then the second... So you got, you kind of got a little bit of... There was a little bit of a cushion there where you, you, yes. you got a little bit, uh, you know, private lessons and some kind of a kind of prep course. Exactly. And I practice all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, pray. I, I didn't get the ensemble so what, experience. So what you're saying is, is practice is somewhat important to, to playing an instrument. What? Let me write this down. Wait a minute. That sounds Let like me what you're write saying. write this down. Sounds, Let's call it repetition. It sounds like, so you're not just born with it. And you just, <laughs> so there actually has to be some work done. Well, I, work. Shut this down. We've, I've, I know. I've done 20 of these. And, <laughs> and no one of them, ever said No one's ever said that. <laughs> we, we went from, I was born, I picked up an instrument, and I'm, I'm famous and rich and have a lot of women. <laughs> that's, that's not it. Wait a minute. We're still talking about my dad? That, oh, wait, that, that was only, sorry. That was only the Derek Webb podcast where okay. you said that. Oh, uh, oh. <laughs> just kidding. what was kind of your your interest? Because at that point, you, you kind of know what you can do. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, was, don't want, you don't want to be like a symphony or no, anything. No, like even that. in high school, I I was interested in jazz. Okay, I heard the stuff. That's where I wanted, and and the fact that somebody could play an improvised solo with no music that intrigued the heck out of me, oh, man. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I wanted to live in that world. That's still interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of where I was going. So I'm building up trombone technique and trying to do this stuff for one reason. That's to improvise. I mean, that's really where I was going, but I had to do other things to make a living. I mean, to, to be a, a right. trombone player. So what was your, did you have any thought towards the future? Like once you get out of college of what you wanted to do, you bet. was it just, I just want to play forever or yes. did it, did it matter the <laughs> format or did it, were you just wide open to whatever came to you? I wanted to be a player. Yeah. That's all I've ever wanted to be. Did you have, like, what was your kind of model in your head? Like, was there anybody that you were like, I want to be like that guy, somebody you saw on TV or somebody you saw that like you would listen to records? Like what, like session guy or like a, a traveling player? Like what was your kind of idea? Well, first of all, I had a hero, Irby Green, mm-hmm. and Irby Green to me this day is the epitome of the professional trombone player, and uh, he was the man for 20 years or longer of that time, and Irby is still alive, and he's uh, well up into his 80s. Have you ever met him? Once. Stood on stage with him once and played. Really? Yeah. 
How long ago was that? That was at uh, Oklahoma City for uh, Oklahoma City University. Had him as a guest artist. And uh, This is when you were in Oklahoma? Right. Okay. And the guy put out the word to a few of the good, quote, trombone players of the area that Irby's going to be here. And if you want to get on stage with him and play some blues, you're invited. So just me and... So did you jump at that chance? Oh, gosh. At intermission, we went down into the green room. Uh, <laughs> no pun intended. Exactly. And Irby was there. And Paul Brewer and I just pushed the poor man back into a corner. And we, we said, oh, gosh, Irby, <clears throat> listen, your recording on this was so great. This influenced me here. I can't believe you could do this. As a, co- as a high school kid, I listened to this. Oh, the persuasive trombones, one and two, were my hero. Right. And it, finally, he shut us up. He was so embarrassed because he was a very shy person. And he finally said, please, please, guys, I was just trying to make a living. I, I didn't know I was going to create a, you know, a whole thing. A bunch of mini Irby's. Exactly. He <laughs> said, I had no idea I was, I was making policy. Right. I, I just wanted to make a living. He was so sweet. He's just a very genuinely sweet man. Years later, uh, when I taught a Clark Terry jazz camp, I had a, a young man named uh, Chris Green in my combo. And I kidded him about having the name Green. And he said, you have no idea. I'm Irby Green's youngest son. And I said, you're not serious. And wow. Um, so I, I wrote Irby a note through his son and, and told him I was proud to take care of his son wow. for a week. And that was just an honor to, so, to be there. So go back to college. You wanted That's basically the guy you wanted to be? Yes. You just wanted to be the guy that was the guest player on all this stuff? And, well, no, Irby, <clears throat> Irby was the most recorded trombone player in the world, but he was also a great session guy. You know, He played in New York, and then he, he went to California for a while. And I, I could never see that far into the future. I just wanted to go on the road with a big band, like mm-hmm. Stan Kent and Woody Herman. I would love to have done Woody Herman band right. and been with those guys because they had more fun than anybody, or Buddy Rich or any of those. That's where I yeah. was. That's where my head was, was go on the road with a big band and see where that leads. Because at the time, there were a lot of them. I'm sure there are now, but it's not. you just don't hear about it. As no. Now it's kind of like the... Uh, what's what's the the kind of like last tour? What are those the called? Ghost bands. Yeah, but they're they're called. It's called something. Where where the leader has long since been dead. Yeah, and it's just kind of like. And they still have a ghost band and, and, out there. Yeah, and the then Glenn one, Miller band. Exactly, and then once the once the, kind of the clients or the the fans of uh, people who are still alive are are no longer here, <clears> they'll kind of disappear. But, yes, but at the time, you know, because when was this? This was in the sixties. It's in the sixties, and so it was still and, kind of like a. There was a revival oh, okay. of big bands. Big bands were playing funk, rock, stuff. Uh, I mean, Woody, Buddy Rich, man, Buddy Rich had a monster band. Uh, Kenton had that that gigantic band of massive brass, and uh, they were relatively popular because they could they could play concerts and go into schools and do educational stuff. Oh, okay. So at that time, you know, when I get was in college. These bands were around, and they were touring and at least making a living. So there was a job there. Exactly. And, and that's what you wanted to get into. You might have broken even, but you could go play your horn. And that's all I cared about. Yeah. Was playing. I relate to that. <laughs> Just bringing you in. Are you kidding me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that so, was really my goal <clears throat> was to get hooked up with a big man and go on the road. The road was always oh my gosh what intrigued me. That's where I always wanted to, and it still does. Live. I mean, you still you still go out and play, which I, I mean I'll get to in a minute. But I I do. What is it that pull? Because I feel that too, and I love being home. Because yep. I'm split between a lot of things. Like a lot of things I enjoy equally. Like I love being at home and being in my own space and creating and just being in my own bed and kitchen and having all that. But then, but I, I also, you know, there's an amount of time where I get antsy and I want to go out on the road yes, and, yes. And, and play. Not yes. not even go, I don't even think I would enjoy going and traveling. I like going with a point. Yes. You know, point A, point B, point C, come home. Yes. You know, so, so you had that too. So that's, I do. That's interesting. There's just something exciting about being able to take who you are and get it out to another audience or to somewhere else. And it's not like, I don't know that I would enjoy being on mass media. It, it's, it's the individual, just a, what a high mean, school audience. You, or, oh, okay. So or, you mean like mass media, like playing like Radio City Music Hall every night. <laughs> right, right. I really enjoy being a guest artist for somebody's college group and and taking another group and getting on stage with them and sharing, you know, they seeing what we do and them stepping up to my level if that's what it takes or whatever. And then us presenting a gift to the audience. Have you always enjoyed that? Like even when you were younger? Yes. Really? So, because a lot of like young kids, especially out of college and performers, they just want that big time and those lights and everything. So would you say that you, you were, you were, you were kind of like comfortable with just getting the smaller scale stuff as long as you were just a working musician. Is that all you care, really yes. cared about? It was always just get the horn in the hand mm-hmm. and and uh, do what I do. Yeah. So where how did uh, how how did you start getting work after college? Because I mean, the, I, I I know kind of how I do it because I have the advent of the internet. But like, <laughs> how do you get started? Booking shows and getting that. I had the advent of the interstate. Oh, get on it! I see what you did there. Drive. All right. I am. How how do you even get hooked up with anything? I I guess you made contacts in college and just playing gigs in general. It's 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 networking just like it is now, except it was a little harder. Probably probably a bit more personal then because you actually had to pick up a phone or right. (laughs) Somebody heard about you. Somebody. Or, or I subbed on somebody else's they, band. They knew that they needed a trombone player and they call you kind of deal? Exactly. Like, I know a guy? Exactly. I know a guy who can... Oh. I can't do this tonight, but once you hire Sim, um, he can read and he can play all styles or whatever. And so you get a, a reputation. And then once you do a few gigs, if you show up on time, if you wear the right outfit, if you do what you're told, and by the way, you can play your horn and perform, and they like to take breaks with you, you're not a smart aleck. You're a good hang. You got it. You got it. Uh, then they'll have you back. And That's funny because d- this last record that I made, which you played on, yeah. uh, I, I got to hang out with a couple of session guys that I hadn't met before. And that's exactly kind of the little bit that I've talked to them, a little bit I talked to, to Andy, who, who produced it, would, would say, like, these guys get hired uh, because they have the ability. They show up on time. They do exactly. They have knowledge of all all different styles. They can read music or they can read charts. And above all, they they are the kind of guys that you want to say, "Hey, you want to take twenty minutes? You want to go to lunch?" And, and you genuinely enjoy being around them. And that's that's key because there are a bunch of crazy talented people who are also crazy. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I, that's right. that's interesting how that that's just been a mainstay. It seems like through 
players in general. Exactly. Years. And are we now back to talking about my father and my mother? Yeah. I mean, are it, we? I, I was, was going to say that I see, skill. That's why I wanted to ask about them because I, I do see that skills that, that, that they had. That skill set. The personable skill. Wherever you are, never leaves. And, and, and also the being dependable and responsible part of it. That, that is huge. Oh, believe me, that is huge. And it's, it's something I have a, not a hard time getting across to students, but they don't understand. If they're late to my class, when I get to recommend them, guess what I'm going to say about them? They well, were, they were okay. punctual. They have a problem with they, alarm they, clocks. They, exactly. Yeah. Well, and then they have you know responsibility problems, issues, right. and, and so forth. That does um, say a lot about your your personality. And I, I that's a thing. There are a lot of things that... Uh, that musicians that I hung out with uh, in my high school days and in the twenties uh, that we wrote off as this music is man we just do whatever we want whenever we want into now approaching my thirties and actually being a professional musician for a number of years that n- nobody like nobody respects you more than when you are on time mm-hmm. when you are polite mm-hmm. when you are bring the right equipment when sh- exactly when you show up ready to work and when you are respectful to everybody throughout that process no you will never work more than when you are all of those things that's right so Big you time. would just jump on that so like really it's you would take a gig and then do do your best yes and then from that you know you're playing for a bunch of people you're playing with a bunch of people so really you're making contacts whether you talk to people or not because they're like you know i play with this one guy yep and then you get another gig and another gig off that and, another gig and, off and that. let me tell you what the, the, the one thing that seals, two things I've done that seals the deal. One of them is I can sing backup harmony with people. Oh. And that was big. And the other thing is I help them move equipment. I'll help the drummer come in and out. I'll move the sound system. And guess who they're going to hire? Me or the other guy that just took off and smoked a cigarette the, outside. You got it and beat the traffic home. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's real important. Wow. Yeah. Because I, I have a little bit of that in me too, where because I, I'm well I, when I get to a gig, I'm genuinely excited about the gig. Yeah, the, the, and, my, and my adrenaline is start starting to flow, and I, I want everybody to kind of like it, it is a, just a it's a fun hangout, but it's also I'm in, I'm looking forward to playing with these guys. Absolutely. And so I, I've always kind of been the hey, you need any help kind of guy too, um, especially because I can walk in with my my guitar or you can walk in with your horn and boom, your load in is done. Right. So why not help somebody else who has more? Exactly. <laughs> so, well, I wanted to ask you about because um, we are sitting upstairs in your your area, and around us you you can't miss uh, the presence of Nack and Cole. And I wanted to I wanted to know because um, I mean I don't even think I really know. I just know that Nack and Cole has been a presence in, in my <laughs> life since I was a kid. That's but, right. But I and I, I'm just wondering uh, what attached you to him. At, when you first heard it, first got, heard his music, and what is what has made him a mainstay, you know, all these years for you? What is specifically about him intrigues you as a musician? Good question. Because you can't walk into this house, like you said, and not see it. Nor can you walk into my office at school. Yeah. Nor can you walk in tomorrow to any of my oral skills classes and not hear the Nat King Cole lecture on the Christmas song. Yeah. Um, it started uh, real early in life. Uh, I was probably in late grade school, maybe ninth or 10th grade in high school. He was the first guy, the first real commercial person that I heard on the radio that I was drawn to. And it, it wasn't just his voice, which I think is great. If, if I could hear God's voice audibly, I think it would be Matt. 
but it was, uh, it was the way he approached things and the way he sang things just appealed to me. It was just like, yeah, that's just the way it ought to be done, whether it was something easy or not. And in those days, uh, th- this was in the early 60s, uh, my mother was listening, or Nat had just come out with the couple of the uh, country albums. You know, where he did uh, Ramblin', Ramblin Rose. Rose, Cold Cold Heart, which right. I still like. Yeah. I can't get over. I always listen to Cold Cold Heart if it's on. Mm-hmm. Um, and that those grabbed me. And then I started digging in and seeing what else she had of Nat. And he had, of course, most of his stuff was swing. Some had big band behind him. Some had just the trio behind him. And so this great guy who, who everybody said was a really nice guy. Uh, really intrigued me musically with his voice, but also with just his style and everything he did, and just the relaxed. I mean, he was just like Mister Cool. Yeah, he just never seemed his to voice lose is, his cool. His voice is effortless too. Exactly, exactly. That's how I wanted to be. Was this effortless, jazzy, cool? I don't know. Yeah. So, so he just appealed to me. The more I looked into his life, read a biography, uh, read a couple of biographies, and the more I saw how he went about his business and what he did, the more I admired him. And I just never could get past Nat. Yeah. What do you get out of listening to him? Like even this, those same old recordings over yeah. and over again. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you find yourself dissecting different parts every time? Or is it just sometimes just nice to, to put on an, uh, like an old friend? Yeah, exactly. The parts have long since been dissected. I know every detail. So it's, now it's just an enjoyment factor. It's right. It's just like getting, like you said, it's just getting with a friend and saying, Hey, yeah. we, we've been at this a long time. Bad boy. Yeah. You know, that kind of deal. I love that. Uh, I guess it was, a, I don't know how many years, five or six years ago, uh, you you acquired the, this Live of the Sands. So I, I, I still love listening to that. And uh, uh, a couple of years ago when dri- driving out to Vegas and like driving the Vegas Strip, I put it on and just like, <laughs> uh, there's just something about the electricity of that, of that record. Why is that record so special? And it really is a collector's item because it was the first, if not the only, live recording of, of Nat Cole where where they set him up um, after all the, the Vegas shows were done. This is in 1960, 60, I believe. Um, like at 2 o'clock in the morning, his, this, this recording session began. So all of the Las Vegas um, performers and all the shows closed down theirs at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock or whatever and came over to this theater, the Sands, to see Nat's show. So... So the crowd was the performers, and so you know he was pumped. So he's playing to his like contemporaries and buddies and stuff. Yes, and when like, you look whoever, at whoever like Sinatra or Don Rickles or whoever right. was playing the the town, Sammy Davis Jr. They're all there. Oh wow! And, and when you look at the pictures in the album, uh, you see all these guys in the audience, and you see them hanging out with Nat. Yeah, and uh, he'd already done one, you know, two sets of shows in his regular show. And then his and that whole band had already done this, you know, many times. And now they set up at three o'clock to do this recording session, and uh, and you know, so that, they're just relaxed and ready to go. Exactly, that band was so pumped. You can just tell yeah. by the way they're playing. Oh, it's phenomenal. They, yeah. they were stoked, and everybody was uh, pumped and happy. It's it's one of my favorite things because I can hear glasses clank, I can hear feet move, and and people clearing their throat. Um, it's like the real deal. And Nat does things live that he would never be able to to get across, you know, in, in a studio. For like instance, little senses of humor. And- yes, and he goes from one tune, and he uh, he shows off his perfect pitch. 
you know, oh, yeah. you know, he sings the end of one tune, and then the next tune may be a minor third away or a major uh-huh. third away. Not nothing that you're going to grab. And he says, and here is now another old tune called, and bingo, he sings the first major, and then the band comes in, the orchestra comes in, right on pitch, of course. Oh, that, yeah, I love it. Thank you very much for sign a very lovely song, in fact, very lovely oldie entitled Funny How I've Stopped Loving You. I can pass you on the street and my heart don't skip a beat, not much. So much my eyes wanna cry. Funny how I've stopped loving you. I can listen to you. And, and I mean, just being grown up with it, it now you've passed it on to me, and I even get um, people because people, you know, people whoever their their kind of scope of different types of genres are, that's who they'll say you know somebody sounds like. But I and so. Since this last record, and, and since I've kind of let myself incorporate uh, more jazzy chord changes and different and, and melodies to my stuff, I get people come up to me afterwards and you know, at shows and will tell me like, like, ah, are, do you have any jazz influence in you? Cause I, <laughs> ah. that you listen to? Because I hear, and they always say Frank Sinatra. <clears throat> but that's, and, who, and that's I, the only person they know. Exactly, probably. and I will I'll correct them and be like, well, it's more Nack and Cole. Is, is who you're thinking of. I mean, it's not who you're thinking of, but, but that's that's yeah. who the influence is. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and that's just one of those things that I couldn't... Probably is, I latched on to the same reason that you did. I mean, it sounds like it because I got into him because you were into him, and you're you right. got into him because your mom was. Right. And you, But it's just a thing that you gravitate towards. And so you don't know if I... If you nature or nurture, you you don't know yeah. if I passed it down and you said, well, that was my dad's. I need to listen to it. Yeah. Or you hear it and you have the same draw to it that I did because you are mine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So there there really is no no telling. What uh what about the because another part of and this being the holidays, another part of of Nacking Cole, the probably the first song that I ever heard by him was the Christmas song, right. And uh, and you do do a you do a lecture like as you said about the Christmas song and that King Cole. Uh, Why did you start doing that in your classes? Like what what about that song specifically? Do you think uh, needed to be talked about and uh, maybe a dialogue started? Do you uh, have a lot of hard drive space? <laughs> so you got a little bit to talk about. I won't, I won't get that deep into it. <laughs> yeah. But first of all, the tune itself and the, and the chords that go along with it because I am a harmony guy. Right. Um, in the first eight bars, it goes through three keys. That's massive for a pop tune. And uh, the whole scheme of the thing, the whole harmonic scheme, is just absolutely wonderful. I've used it for years in freshman and sophomore, when, even when I taught sophomore harmony, sh- as showing an example of, of the perfect tonal shift. You know, like it'll go from C and then, and then it tonicizes. Can I use that word? Sure. Okay. And then it tonicizes the key of E and then E flat and then G. And he comes back home to C. Oh my gosh, that's just unbelievable. Uh, and then I found out how it was written and, and how Robert Wells wrote the words first in a hot month of June in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and uh, um, wanted Mel Torme to come over and write the, write the uh, music. And Mel was not happy that he had to drive up into the <laughs> valley and do it in June, and he really wanted to take the day off. And instead, he sucked it up, 
showed some discipline, drove that ride. And this is 1947. Did he ride it on the beach, or is that just a... Uh, no. Because you, you, you can always hear, like, oh, he... Or not always, but like, if you look at their stories, like... They, they get embellished over the years. Like, oh, he was sitting on the beach, you know, and it was 102 degrees outside, and he wrote the song. No, the words to this, but. It, no, uh, Robert Wells actually wrote it in his apartment. Okay. And then he went to the beach, and he called, he, when he called Mel, he said, I'm going to go to the beach, but, you know, it'll be here when you get okay, here. And, okay. And so Mel walked into the apartment, walked in, and there was the piano and the words. And so he sat down, and, and, and Robert Wells said that, you know, he said, oh, I just wanted something to cool me off. And so I, I wrote the things. That remind me of Christmas, chestnuts roasting, roasting and so forth, all the way down the line. And so Mel went in, and within an hour, 45, 50 minutes, knocked out the melody, the chords, and the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And if I had a piano, I would sit here and show you exactly yeah. how that was done. Because the first few chords are just wondering. It's just like you and I would do it when we go to write. Just drop your hands and right. let something fall. Yeah. Let something fall. Don't think it. It just flows. Just, right. Then all of a sudden, it starts to get tonal functional and bingo. Now we're yeah. really going somewhere and you can see how he uh, put it together. But it, everything about the song yeah. intrigues me. Plus it's, this is the perfect example of a tune that's incredibly harmonically right. Um, very sophisticated harmonically, a beautiful melody. And yet it just thrills me musically. It's just like, Oh, I could just sit back and kick back and it's Christmas. Yeah. I mean, it does everything. You know, it's it's one of those nuggets that no matter how dig how deep you dig into it, it's still magic. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by a choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows A turkey and some mistletoe Help to make the season bright Tiny tots with eyes all aglow Will find it hard to sleep tonight They know that Well, we don't have much time left, but I do, I want to touch on a couple things. Uh, one, how I, I, this is a thing that I learned later in my life than I should have. One thing that, uh, a, a, a thing about you and your work in St. Louis that could have possibly a cool story I could have told in school and not got the crap kicked out of me. Maybe. <laughs> um, but you, you would play for bigger acts as they came into town. Right. Like uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Or, or kind of Motown type acts. Um, Kind of explain the process of like of of, of how so, so the artists would come to town and they would just say hey I need I need good local guys to back it up so they didn't have to pay dudes to come with them on the road or how the, how did that work Yeah, normally, um, and and I played. Well, if I listed them now, they would all be dead. Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I played for except Jack Jones, who I loved. I played for a lot of really good uh, people, Stephen Eady and Sinatra, and you played for Sinatra. Yeah. I didn't know that. It, it was on a benefit. It was a benefit type thing. Bob Hope. So you got to stand on stage on the same stage as Frank Sinatra yeah. and Bob Hope. 
Yeah, and uh, that's amazing. Well, <laughs> that's such a cool thing because those guys aren't around anymore. Yeah, right, you know, I right, mean, they right. literally don't exist. Well, and of course, the one I I regret the most is is that Nat died. Yeah. when I was still nineteen and not in the business yet, so I never got to. Otherwise, if he had lived, I, you know, I, I would have played. Oh, there's I no doubt. I would have played. He him. probably would have made that circuit. That's and... right. But the way it works is the guy comes into town, so his manager, you know, his booking agent, calls a booking agent in town mm-hmm. and says. All right, here's what I need. I'm bringing a lead trumpet player and a drummer and a piano player, conductor. You get me, and I, I need four trombones, I need f- four trumpets, I need three saxes. They all need to double this, 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 and this. Here's the deal. So then that guy knows the local people, and that's who I worked for. Okay. And so I was like the, the guy they would call if they needed a lead trombone player or a jazz player. If they needed bass trombone, they call somebody else or whatever. And again, probably having the abilities that you had to you know like we talked about earlier you were an easy guy to hang out with you knew you had improv skills you could sing backup all these things probably helped you in the in the as far as these bookings go right now they didn't need anybody to sing well, backup right, but, right. but but the they, fact that but you, you had to be responsible player. right and the other thing that that you you just brought up in St. Louis when I got there there was two distinct groups of horn players they called them there was the readers and the fakers and there were, that made the guys who could read the charts down, but if you had an ad lib solo, they couldn't play squat. Oh. And the other guys over here could all play by ear. They were Dixieland players and jazz, right. jazz players. They all played by ear, but they were terrible readers. You wouldn't want to get them on a Frank Sinatra job. That sounds like a town I live in. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And so I went there and I took one look. I'm going, well, I can read. I can play lead. Well, duh. And I can play solos. I can yeah. play ad lib stuff. And so I booked myself as the guy who could do it all uh. because I wanted to make a living being a professional trombone player. And so I worked really. And where I was worse, where I was not the best at was the ad lib solos. But I could read. That's what I always did. And so I worked really hard on being a better jazz player and a better Dixieland player and right. all this stuff. Because, you know, whether you're playing for Frank Sinatra and making uh, 300 bucks that night or whether you're playing some stupid Dixieland gig and that's that's not near as musical, but you're making 300 bucks a night, guess what? You're a professional musician. You're making 300 bucks a night. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that was an important thing there. But that's how that worked. They they would call the local that's so, booker. Yeah, that's really He would cool. hire the local guys, and I was a local Because that doesn't happen anymore either. That's a, It's a thing where these bands, these performers bring out people with them. For the most part. A lot of them do. Now, Unless it's like a Branson type thing. Right. Or Little Rock. You know, I'll go, once in a while I'll go do a show in Little Rock because uh, right. whoever's booking it knows me. Uh, but they're not, you can't make a living anymore. But in those days in St. Louis, well, you could just make a living playing. Uh, you had to do it all. Mm-hmm. But if you were willing to put up with a lot of, some stupid gigs, some great gigs, yeah. some recording, some background, whatever it was, if you were willing to put the horn on your face and get paid for it, yeah. you can make a living. And you were willing to do well, that. Oh, believe me, <laughs> I was very willing. Yeah. Like when, when you give other people advice, or what kind of advice would you give as far as like the most important kind of ways to, to approach uh, working in music and, and just, you know, you know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> There's a question in there. Of course. <laughs> of course I know what you're saying. I've heard you talk all your life. I know, I know, I know. Uh, well, as we have talked about, is, is responsibility, discipline, doing what you're told, uh, getting there on time, all of, all of the important Being things. Being respectful. E- exactly. Respecting the uh, process. And, and going further and helping people. You know, like, I don't, I don't care. Don't be a jerk. I'll, I'll help. I'll carry an equipment. I'll do whatever is needed uh, be, because I really liked the, the entire experience. But for me, it was being ready when you get the call. When I moved to St. Louis, St. Louis is a very closed town. It was a very... 
super union town that's very closed. And, and normally guys want to use the guys that they use. They use their friends and so forth. And I couldn't get hired to do anything that winter. And I'm home, but, but I kept practicing. I mean, I was practicing every day. So if I ever get called, I'll be ready. And I got a call one day about noon. And this voice says, you don't know me. My name is Russ David. I did know him from reputation. He said, I've got a band here at the Coruscant Room at the Chase tonight. We're playing this big band show. And my lead trombone player is sick. Answer this question honestly. Can you play I'm Getting Sentimental Over You the way Tommy Dorsey did in the key of D? It's high for trombone, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm going. And I said, Russ, I'm your guy. I can play that because I have practiced that tune a thousand times in that key. And so I went, stood up there scared to death. because I. And as I looked out, there were 3,000 people in the chorus hand room. In the Chase Hotel, it's huge. Wow. It was this big uh, black tie event that Russ David, the premier society guy, was playing for. I stood up. I nailed that tune. He smiled the entire time when it was over. He said, are you free to play the following gigs? And he gave them to me. If I hadn't been ready or if I had felt sorry for myself and not touched my horn for a week or lied because, to him and gone there and screwed up. coming or yeah, whatever. Or depression or whatever. Whatever. Nope. Um, I was ready. And that, that's the biggest thing I can tell people is, Prepare while you're not playing, while you're not getting paid to play. Prepare like you are. Uh, get the fundamentals down. I'd still live off of fundamentals, and so should everybody. And be ready when the call comes. None of it works without that that fundamental work. And that's right. And, it's fundamentals. And, I, and I've known guys my whole life. I know guys who had who had, and I'm sure you did. You have too. But guys that are genuinely talented, and they think that's all they need. Like, well, I have this innate talent somebody knows it probably while well, I'm just sitting here waiting for my phone to ring entitlement yes yeah and exactly yes. and 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 in my job now in school I am no respecter of talent I've seen more talent come through that school and totally wasted and people doing something else uh, because they either weren't fundamental they weren't uh, respectful mm-hmm. they had no discipline they couldn't show up on time they couldn't remember when the gig was they won't write anything down blah 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 the, the, the whole thing or, or they just sat on there and they're still where they were uh, talent wise uh, 20 years ago there's only a small window of when uh, quirkiness is considered uh, cute yeah, yeah. Or, or I should say being unreliable and being all those little things that, that you know that kids are that you're like oh it's cute that they do that there's only a, a short window when, when that yeah. when People just start writing you off and be like, well, I can't rely on that person. Done. Who's the next guy? Exactly. Because there is a next guy. Yeah. Believe there me, there is, there is somebody who's willing to do everything that's necessary. You know, and when you see them at 19 and you go, wow, that's a lot of talent. They'll grow up. And you see them at, at 29 and you go, they haven't grown up. And no. it's the same amount of talent. They're doing let's the same thing up. over. And let's, I know, I know guys like that, yeah. you know, and it, it is sad, but there's... There was something to say. With, I mean, it's so simple. I, a guy's, a guy, I had a guy on Facebook ask me today. He wrote me in and said, you know, asked me to give him pointers on how to do certain things. And, uh, you know, just and, – and it, it's as simple as anything. It's, it's when – and I found the same thing when I lost when – I, when, I, when I lost all this weight or whatever recently uh, or in the past couple of years. People ask, how do you do – how do you do it? And I'm like, well, I – Diet and exercise. <laughs> people it. don't want to hear that. No. And I, you know, when people are like, "Well, how did how did you do this?" You know, and I'm like, "Well, I moved to where there was work, and I did the work." Like you do the work, and I'm not as successful as as I as a lot of guys are, but I am. I'm I'm not in it for a, a quick pop. I'm in it for I want to be a working musician the rest of my life. I wanna, exactly. And I, I don't care if that means the limelight. I don't care what it means. I just want to do something creative with the gifts I've been given, and 
and you just take that and you hone it and you work with, you work with it. And with every opportunity that comes, you be as prepared as possible. And all the guys in, in Nashville that I know that are, are successful or the guys that I look up to all have that same philosophy. Yep. Let me, let me just say this, that, uh, uh, there are three things in music that I do, fundamental things, and, and one is teach, the other one is perform, and the other one is write. And they're like the Holy Trinity for me. They all have to be in line, and I, I, I need to do uh, all of those. And as you know, I, I, I have a job teaching, and so they get satisfied. And I do get to play a lot more uh, lately, and when I retire in, in just a few months, I'm looking forward to a lot more of that. And the kind of playing that I'm doing lately that I really love is to go play with somebody else's trombone choir mm-hmm. and solo on my own charts, which I actually got to write. So there, that satisfies the writing, the writing thing that, that is still there. So it's I'm still having fun. Yeah. And, and now I have a son that's having fun. And that's amazing. And, then, and you are such a testament to uh, there. You can make a living in music. Oh, believe which me. A lot of people and a lot are told, and I was one of them. And anybody who ever tried to pursue music, I'm sure, was told that. And and uh, I always tell people, and I've said it on this podcast, that I, I never thought that wasn't an, uh, an option because, you know, the clothes were always put on my back mm-hmm. and the food was on my table because of music. And, and, uh, growing, right. and growing up in that household where uh, creativity and uh, that, you know, and, and that musician spark or whatever was, that was the reason that, you know, it wasn't too uncommon for me to... Uh, take a bath and, and, and get ready for bed while listening to my dad on the radio. <laughs> uh, right. You know, like, yeah. like, where's dad? Oh, he went to the radio station and, you know, or, or he went to this gig that's going to be broadcast on the radio and, and me and mom and uh, would sit around and listen to that. I mean, that, so yeah. it's just this, so thank you for giving me that. Thanks. So. <laughs> well, thanks, dad. You thanks bet. For- thanks for listening once again. I hope you enjoyed uh, my talk with my dad. Uh, and that will do it for the final podcast of 2011. Uh, I can't believe it. We did it, you guys. You and I, we did it. Well, mainly I did it, but you helped too, I'm sure, in some capacity. Uh, if you want to write into the podcast, you can do so at uh, podcast at gmail.com. Write in uh, about anything discussed on this show or previous ones and send in your lists of top music for me uh, to read on the next one uh, or, or movies or TV or books, whatever. Uh, your favorites of 2011 I want to hear it so please 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 write in Uh, I will be posting that episode the first Tuesday of January thanks once again for being a part of this podcast guys I'm having a blast with it and I I hope to continue throughout the next year and uh, I I know a few guests that are coming up um, are going to delight a lot of you Uh, they're great and although I can't say exactly who they are just yet uh, it's very exciting and so uh, for that and for who writes this stuff I'm Nick Flora See you next year.